Good morning. So great to be with you. Just let me take a look. Boy, you look good. You really do. And you sound good, too. You were singing well, praising God. It's so neat to be here together. And if you're joining us online, I just want to say thank you um, for joining us this morning. We're glad that you're here. It's great to be here. I'm Diane Thatcher. I'm one of the pastors here at Meadow Park. And I, uh, I heard from Pastor Mark and his family are on vacation this week, if you're wondering where he is. But he did text this morning. And he wanted you to know that he is thinking of you, that he's praying for us and for the services today. And I appreciate those prayers. <laughs> We're continuing our series in Passport to the Mediterranean. We've been working our way through the letters of the Apostle Paul kind of as they appear in the New Testament. We've looked at Paul's letters to the believers in Rome, Corinth, Corinth and Galatia. And today we're going to be looking, taking a look at Ephesus and Paul's letters to the believers there. And one of the reasons that we're walking through this series together is to remember that Paul was a real person and he was writing to real people about real life issues. And what always amazes me when I'm reading Paul's letters, and really any part of the Bible, but especially Paul's letters, is that you would expect things to be really different, right, when he's writing, as opposed to what they are today. You would think this isn't going to apply 2,000 plus years later, but what really amazes me is how relevant Paul's words are to us today and to what we're dealing with. A few years ago, I had my identity stolen. Has anyone ever gone through that? <laughs> this was a while ago, but I don't know. They had my social security number. They opened a credit card uh, account in my name. They had a different billing address. And the credit card company called me, and they were saying, we just want to verify this new address and make sure that it's you. And I'm like, no, that's not me. I did not open that account. And so they advised that I would call the police department and file a police report because it was a significant amount of money that had been charged. So I said, okay. So I called the police department, and the police department said, I'm sorry, you really can't file a report because the crime wasn't against you. The crime was against the credit card company, um, not against you. And I was, I knew what they meant, but I was like, really? It feels really personal. <laughs> I was like, this is my identity. I mean, here in the States especially, right, we place a lot of importance on our identity. We start asking kids, well, as soon as they're, I have a one-year-old great-nephew, they're always saying, what do you want to be <laughs> when you grow up? Who are you? What do you want to be? We place a lot of importance on identity, just even when kids are just first starting to talk. And I don't know about you, um, when I was little, I wanted to be somebody else. Did anybody else want to just be somebody else? I don't know. Maybe I have issues. I think I do. <laughs> but everyone else seems so interesting. You know, when I was really little, I wanted to be a ballet dancer. When I was a little older, I wanted to be an actress. When I was in middle school, I wanted to be Italian. <laughs> See, my best friend was Italian. And I would go to um, family reunions with her, and her family was so big, and they were loud, and they were hugging and kissing each other, and they had great food, and they just seemed like Italians have way more fun. 
Then when I was 16, I had a profound call into full-time pastoral ministry. And some of you know my story, and I've shared parts of my story um, different times, but it was very clear to me that God was calling me to be a pastor. And being a teenager, I really didn't know what my next steps should be after that. And so I went to a couple of the pastors in the denomination that I was in at that time, and I told them what had happened, and I told them, you know, I didn't know what to do next. I didn't know what my next steps were. And I was told several times that I was mistaken, that God did not call women to be pastors. <laughs> I wish you had been there. <laughs> Fast forward 30 years, I'm in seminary, getting my Master of Divinity degree, but I'm still battling these voices in my head telling me that I didn't belong, that somehow I was less than, or that I didn't measure up to God's standards. And I struggled with those feelings of insecurity a lot in the beginning. And maybe you've had similar struggles. You know, it's a serious thing when we have doubts or insecurities about who we are. I mean, we even call it an identity crisis, right? Sometimes these insecurities come from within. Sometimes they come from outside pressures. Paul writes his letter to encourage the believers in Ephesus and to remind them of who they are in Christ and why it is so important for them to courageously live out this new identity that they have. So before we dive into Paul's letter to the Ephesians, I want to create some context for the city of Ephesus because it was a real place. As a matter of fact, it was one of the most important port cities in the Roman Empire. And Ephesus was located, we have a map, yeah, it's located in what was Asia Minor then, what's modern Turkey today. It was a large port city. They say, um, historians say it had about 250,000 people that lived there at the time that Paul was writing his letter to the Ephesians, which was about 60 AD. And today, um, basically Ephesus is kind of a, a ruins. Uh, it's the excavation site because the water has moved a little bit further away. So um, Selchuk is the closest city nearby. If we can go to the picture of um, Selchuk there. It is um, just right outside of Ephesus, and it has a population of about 35,000 today. Um, do we have the slide for the city? Maybe not. But Ephesus is a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and it can be found um, near Selchuk. And uh, archaeologists have done excavations, and they have done uh, they've uncovered architecture. And I don't know, do we have um, the slides of, of Ephesus there? Can we do? Okay, this is the, the modern streets of Ephesus. We're going to go through these quick. We have one of, um, that's Selchuk, the city. Um, we have the columns. There we go. Hadrian's uh, temple, or I'm sorry, Celsus Library. This is Hadrian's temple. And then the amphitheater. And the amphitheater held about 25,000 people. Um, I, this is my bucket list. Boy, I want to go there sometime and see all these things in person. Now, the region around Ephesus um, practiced two dominant religions. One was the worship of Greek gods, and Ephesus had about 50 local deities. And then the other was imperial cult, or if you want to say it was the practice of worshiping the Roman emperors. 
Ephesus had one goddess in particular that really dominated their worship. And this was the goddess Artemis, as the Greeks called her, or Diana, as the Romans called her. Now, I want to be clear, no relation. <laughs> Although I have been called a goddess. <laughs> I can't believe I said that. Okay. <laughs> this is not why I wanted to be Italian. I'll just tell you later. <laughs> Artemis was um, depicted as the goddess of a hunt traditionally in throughout the Roman Empire. But in Ephesus, Artemis was almost exclusively thought of as the goddess of fertility. And a whole industry of goods and services grew up around the temple of Artemis. There were priests and craftsmen with shops filled with silver statues, tokens. They sold potions. They had black magic. They would put curses on people or remove curses from people. People traveled all over the Roman Empire to come to Ephesus. They would bring gifts and sacrifices to appease Artemis, hoping that she would, um, that they could become pregnant or that they would, she would provide protection during childbirth. And I think we have some, here's the, what's left of the temple of Artemis, but then we go to what is the model. This is what they thought it looked like back at the time. And it was actually considered one of the seven uh, wonders of the world um, at the time. It dominated um, the landscape of Ephesus, as you can imagine. All, it dominated all the events of the daily life for the Ephesians as well. And you could say there wasn't any place where you could stand without falling under the shadow of the Temple of Artemis, whether it was spiritually, economically, or physically. And it's into this culture, into these cultic practices, into this commerce and fearful spirituality that Paul first shares the love and grace of Jesus Christ. So if you want to hear about Paul's first visit to Ephesus, you would read Acts chapters 19 and 20. And this tells us that Paul came to Ephesus the first time in his third missionary journey. He stayed approximately two and a half to three years when he was there preaching and teaching the good news of Jesus. And then approximately five years later, Paul is under house arrest in Rome, and he begins to write this letter to the believers in Ephesus from his prison. And although Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, which has a mix of Jewish and Gentile believers, he seems most concerned with encouraging the Gentile believers and reminding them of their identity in Christ. Now, why is that? Well, it would be easy for the Gentile believers to feel like second-class citizens next to the Jewish believers. See, Judaism was an ancient religion, but at that time it was really considered to be only for the Jews. And Paul speaks to the, the Gentiles, and he kind of says what was um, kind of the thought at the time. In Ephesians 2, he says, Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You lived in this world without God and without hope. That sounds so sad. Now, up until Jesus' ministry, Gentiles were considered outside of the covenant promises of God, which were made to the Jews. And remember, at this time, Christianity is brand new. It's hard to even wrap our minds around that. See, people are hearing for the first time that there is a God who loves them. And Paul says, it's not a new development. And he's saying this to the Gentiles. He wants them to hear this. He says in, in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 4, even before he made the world... God loved us. See, God had a plan from the beginning 
to reconcile the world, all of us, Jews and Gentiles. And Gentiles just means everybody who's not a Jew. Jews and Gentiles reconcile all the world to himself through Christ. And Paul says, once you were outsiders, but now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. That's the testimony of every believer, yes. Paul spent about three years in Ephesus, and while he was there, there were so many Gentiles, Greeks and Romans, who became believers that it actually created a riot in Ephesus. See, the commerce of the city revolved around the temple of Artemis, and when so many people became believers in Christ, they stopped buying the statues, the trinkets, they stopped paying tribute, they stopped attending the festivals, and it affected the economics of the city. And this was not good for the city. So there was a lot of tension and suspicion towards the Gentile believers by the other Gentiles. They were like, you're defectors, or even they called them atheists. You have left all these other gods, right? So you're an atheist now. And then there was also tension and suspicion between Jewish and Gentile believers. And we know that this because they're just figuring it all out, right? I mean, first we were supposed to stay separate. Now we're supposed to come together. We're, just, we're not sure how to do this. What does it look like to follow Jesus? And so as a new believer, and even some of us feel this way too, right? I know I felt this way as a new believer. It's not uncommon to experience these feelings. We think, I don't want to go back to where I was. That life is over. But when I come in and I look around, I'm not sure that I really belong here either. We experience insecurity at many times during our life. And you might be new right now to this whole faith thing. And you might be thinking, hey, I'm new to following Jesus. And I, I, you know, I'm trying to figure this out. And I feel like I don't know anything. And so-and-so over there has studied the Bible since he was a little boy, and he knows everything. And he's only 13. <laughs> little show-off. <laughs> Comparisons are deadly traps, aren't they? But it's easy to find ourselves there. Have you ever been tempted to think that somehow you have a different standing with God than someone else? that somehow you are less deserving of God's love? Have you ever slipped into the comparison trap and found yourself thinking, I might be a little better or a little more deserving than someone else? Have you ever asked someone to pray because you thought they might have more or better access to God than you? See, Paul understood that this was what some of the Gentile and Jewish believers were struggling with. And Paul wants them to be so sure of their true value. He says this in Ephesians 2, but God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead, because it's only by God's grace that you have been saved. And he says, not only did God love you so much, but he's been anxiously waiting to welcome you into his family as his own. He says this, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do. Now listen to this, and it gave him great pleasure. 
Don't you love that? It gives God pleasure to call you his son or daughter. As believers, we all have a gotcha day <laughs> when we were adopted into God's family. That's something to celebrate. So what does it mean? It means you have value. It means you are loved. No matter who you are, no matter what you thought about God, no matter your status, no matter how you were raised, no matter what you have done, I want you to hear this. You matter to God. You have great value. You are deeply loved. Have you grasped this truth fully? When my dear husband was alive, we used to teach an adult life group together many years ago, and I remember teaching one week on the events leading up to Jesus' death on the cross. And in the Gospel of John, in chapter 13, John is writing, and he writes, the disciple Jesus loved was sitting next to Jesus at the table. And John's writing about himself. And I remember thinking, that's kind of arrogant. <laughs> you know, because John's writing the gospel, and he refers to himself as the disciple Jesus loved. But I tell you what, all week long, I kept thinking about that statement, that verse. And then I, I finally realized... <laughs> <laughs> was it something I said? <laughs> I finally realized, thinking about this all week long, that it wasn't arrogance. It was acceptance. See, John got it. See, earlier in that chapter, it says this, Jesus loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. And John got it. Jesus loved him and he embraced his identity in Christ. He was the disciple Jesus loved. And this had such an impact on me because I'll be honest with you, it was always, it's always been difficult for me to believe that God loves me unconditionally. It's just something that I've struggled with and I've had to step into that and remind myself of that. So at this time, I created a sign out of um, little construction paper and, uh, and I wrote on it, the disciple Jesus loves. And I taped it on my bathroom mirror so that every morning, um, for several years actually, uh, when I looked into the mirror every morning, I would see the truth of who I was in Christ, that I had value, that I was loved. What about you? When did God start loving you? Was it when you started to attend, to attend church? Was it when you decided to have an interest in the things of God? Was it when you decided that you wanted to be a better person? Was it when you started reading your Bible? Started praying? Paul says, before the dawn of time, God loved you. Accepting and embracing this truth doesn't mean that there still isn't work to be done in our lives. It simply says, this is a better foundation to hold on to for change than judging ourselves. When we put our trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord, we take on a new identity in Christ. And I love that Paul keeps saying us over and over and over again. He doesn't say you, he keeps saying us, us, us. Because it's not just the Gentile believers that have this new identity, it's every believer then and now. So why is it so important for us to understand this truth? 
Because <clears throat> when we can see ourselves the way that God sees us, then we can begin to see other people the way that God sees them. When we understand our value in Christ, we can recognize that same value in others. Church of God convention uh, was held June 22nd through the 25th, and one of the reports presented there was from the Justice and Equity Task Force, and they gave a report entitled Unity with a Heartbeat of Holiness. And they were tasked with ascertaining whether or not we as the Church of God were living up to our values of walking together in holiness and unity, particularly in regards to race and women in ministry. And I want to tell you, the Church of God is unique in that from the beginning of the movement in the late 1800s, the Church of God has embraced men and women in ministry and has taken courageous stands against racism. But that is our legacy, okay? That is our history. But we know, we know every day that we've gotten a little bit lazy and we need and we can do better. See, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, old, young, Republican, Democrat, male, female, race, ethnicity, ethnicity, you can say that, <laughs> ethnicity, <laughs> status. The world doesn't have an answer on how to rectify our differences. Paul says the answer to our divided world is given to us in Jesus Christ. Listen to these words that Paul writes, for Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. Whatever separates believers today, Paul says, stop it. Jesus has already broken down the wall of hostility, the wall that separates. The wall of, of hostility, this was a real thing that Paul's talking about. There was a wall of partition in the temple in Jerusalem and um, the wall said, we're the people that love God and know God and on this side, and on that side, you're the people who don't know God. And they actually excavated, they found one of the pillars. It was described by Josephus, who is an ancient historian. And on this pillar was actually inscribed this, no man of another nation to enter within this fence and enclosure around the temple. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame that his death ensues. In other words, here's the line, if you cross it, we're not responsible for what happens. That's hardcore. <laughs> we go, oh. We may not be inscribing warnings on pillars, but it does make you wonder, what barriers are we erecting or protecting that make it harder for people to come to Christ? Christ brought this good news of peace to the, to the Gentiles. This is what Paul says. Christ brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him and peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us can come. I want you to hear this. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. See, there's no favoritism with God. We all have the same value. We all have the same standing before God through the Holy Spirit and through Jesus' work on the cross. So we can't forget that everybody, and everybody includes you and me, we can't forget that everybody is somebody that God loves. Everybody is somebody for whom Jesus died. Paul says, make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. God's grace restores our relationship with God, but it also restores our relationships with each other. Paul says this is the gospel of the good news of peace. In 
any walls that separate us should not be able to stand under the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul says it's important because the church is God's witness to the world, and the church is a witness to the world by our unity. One Lord, one faith, one God and Father of all. God's purpose is to use the church to display his wisdom in all its rich variety. And then he says this, you are members of God's family together. Together we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and the cornerstone is Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Now, you know that Paul's letters, the letters are supposed to be read out loud. Excuse me a second. They're supposed to be listened to, not actually read, so someone would read them out loud. And I'm sorry, when I was listening to this, I could just hear the person going, you are members of God's family. Wow. Not only that, together we are a house built on the foundation of the scriptures, the words of the apostles and the prophets. Oh, not only that, Jesus himself, he's the very cornerstone of this building. And that's not all. We, all of us, joined together, are becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Wow. <laughs> See, we, we tend to lose the impact of some of the words of Scripture because of our context, right? But think about the Ephesian believers. Everything in their world revolved around the temple of Artemis, right? It, it impacted everything in their daily lives. There was no separation of church and state. The temple overshadowed everything that was done and said. People from all over the known world came to see this wonder of the world, the temple of Artemis. And Paul is saying, forget about that. You're going to be the wonder of the world. You are becoming God's temple. You're going to be the temple that people are going to marvel at. The Holy Spirit is making his home in you. That's cool. Unity is so foreign to our world, even to our churches. But I think when people look at us, when they look at believers, when they look at all of us together, when they look at the church, they should be shaking their heads in wonder. They should be going, it's unbelievable. You see how they treat each other? You see how they love each other? It's like they're not even from here. Unity doesn't come naturally. Paul says it takes effort. In other words, it's a choice. It's a decision we make day by day. And we live it out in the power of the Holy Spirit. So how do we choose unity? Well, we choose to stop seeing the other person as other, and we start seeing them as family. And we practice unity, not just by what we believe and what we say, but by how we treat each other. And Paul goes into a lot of specifics about all of our relationships, husbands and wives, children and parents, um, when you're working and your employers and all of this stuff. And if you, I encourage you to read those chapters five and six for all of those specifics. But if I were to sum up everything that he was saying in these last chapters, it would be this, honor one another. And how do we honor each other? Well, he says, first of all, you can start by not dishonoring anyone. He says, stop telling lies. Control your temper, quit stealing, don't use abusive language. In other words, get rid of those things because those types of things are not acting with other people's best interest in mind, or your own for that matter. 
He says, instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. He says, determine to treat people honorably. See, when we see someone made in the image of God, someone for whom Christ died, you see someone and you know that person is as valuable as you, make the intentional choice. Say to yourself, I'm going to treat you honorably. Honorably. Not necessarily because you deserve it, because I may not even know you that well, but I'm going to treat you with honor because my heavenly Father saw so much value in you that he sent his son to die for you just as he did for me. See, when we can see ourselves the way that God sees us, then we can begin to see other people the way that he sees them. Paul says this as he closes out, be imitators of God in everything you do. Because you are his dear children, live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. When we understand our value, we can recognize the same value in others. When we embrace our identity in Christ, then we can welcome others with open arms into the family. When we can remember that everybody is somebody that God loves and everybody is somebody for whom Jesus died, then it isn't hard to honor one another and to live into the unity that God desires for us as his children, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as his church, big C, little c, in our world. Will you pray with me? Father God, we love you so much. Thank you for your transformative power, the power of your love and grace that is at work in us. Would you help us to see ourselves the way that you see us so that we can see others with your eyes, with your heart. Thank you for loving us from the beginning of time. And thank you for loving us until the end of time. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to save us and to restore us to life in you. Amen.